0: Yuba City, California, a relatively small town about 126 miles or 203 kilometers from San Francisco, if you take good old I-80. Not much happens here, but when it does, it makes the headlines. In 1995, there was a flood that killed 38 people on Christmas Eve. On March 14, 1961, a Boeing B-52 that was carrying nuclear weapons crashed. The weapons, two Mark 39, 3.8 megatons each, thermonuclear bombs were destroyed on impact, though no explosion took place, and there was supposedly no release of radioactive material. And if that wasn't gruesome enough for you, well... On May 21, 1976, a school bus-carrying members of the Yuba City High School's choir plunged 28 feet off the exit ramp on I-680 at Marina Visitor Road in Martinez, California. 27 students and one adult chaperone died, and 23 students were seriously injured. As you can see, this town is no stranger to tragic events. But there is one that remains unsolved, and the case I'm referring to is the Yuba County 5. What happened on the night of February 24, 1978? That would cause five friends to vanish without a trace, only to be found months later in very mysterious circumstances. Four dead, and one never to be seen again. How did a fun night out with the boys turn into a death sentence in some remote snowy mountains? Was it a homicide or was it something more sinister? There was nothing that stood out about that night in particular. These five friends, Jack Madruga, 30, William Sterling, who was 29, Ted Wire, who was 32, Gary Mathias, who was 25, and Jack Hewitt, who was 24, were mostly homebodies. But that night, they decided to go and see a basketball game. You see, these five young men who were all part of a program for the mentally handicapped had been anticipating their special Olympics basketball tournament that was scheduled for the very next night in Sacramento. They planned on attending the college basketball game to get them enthusiastic for their own game. Let me warn you, the more facts I give you, the more mysterious this case will get. You're about to hear the full story so you can make your own conclusions. If you're new here, I'm your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained, Anthony Rossetti, and welcome to episode 17 of Not Another Horror Podcast. February 24th, 1978 The basketball game lasted longer than they thought it would. It was now two hours before midnight. The half moon shined in the cloudless winter sky. The boys were ready to go home. The five boys all crammed into a turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego and drove out of the parking lot. Like most of us that have ever went to an event, they were hungry. So they stopped three blocks away at Bear's Market, mildly annoying the store clerk who was trying to close up. I mean, you know how you get for those of us working in retail, how people come in last minute and we just want them to leave. Well, unfortunately, this store clerk would be the last person to ever see them alive. While they were there, though, they bought one hostess cherry pie, one lemon pie, one sneakers bar, one marathon bar, two Pepsis, and a quart and a half of milk. The five young men walked out of the store, got back in their car, drove south out of Chico, and disappeared. February 25th, 1978. The next morning, Ted's mother woke up abruptly in a panic. She says she didn't know why, but she just felt something horrible had happened to her son. Call it mother's intuition. She went into Ted's room only to find it empty. Ted had not come home that night. The house, as she describes it, had an eerie stillness to it. A sort of foreboding, if you will, nestled itself in the air. That's how the worst day of your life usually starts. It starts like any other day which you just know something is going to go wrong. Pretty soon the other parents woke up to the same mystery but some stayed up all night to try and wait for their sons to come home. Ted's mom got on the phone and called Bill Sterling's mother as fast as she could. Juanita Sterling had been up since 2 a.m. She told her Bill didn't come home either. Miss Sterling had already called Jack Madruga's mother. Jack also had not come home. Mrs. Ware called Jackie Hewitt's mother, and Miss Ware's daughter in law walked down the street to talk to Gary Mathias' stepfather. All five friends had vanished at 8 that evening. Mrs. Madruga the police you might be wondering why are these parents so concerned about mid to late 20 year olds and a 30 year old not coming home isn't that normal i mean aren't they adults well let me give you a little bit of a backstory on the boys all five either had slight intellectual disabilities or psychiatric disorders as a result of their varying conditions, they each lived at home with their parents. Gary Mathias had the most severe mental health. He was suffering from schizophrenia and was on medication to control his symptoms. He was an assistant in his stepfather's gardening business and an army veteran with psychiatric discharge after drug problems that developed in Germany five years before. Now, Jack Madruga was a high school graduate and an army veteran. But he was laid off in November 1977 from his job as a busboy for Sweet Growers. He had a low IQ but had been diagnosed as mentally disabled and both he and Gary had served in the U.S. Army. And they were the only two to have driver's licenses. Ted Wire was employed for a while as a janitor and a snack bar clerk but quit at the urging of his family who thought... Wire's slowness was causing problems. According to his family, he lacked common sense. His brother said that one time, he spent $100 on pencils just because. William Lee Sterling, who was Madruga's closest friend, was deeply religious. He would spend hours at the library reading literature to help bring Jesus to patients in mental hospitals. Jack Hewitt, who had a slight droop to the head, was sometimes slow to respond, and he was a loving shadow to wear, who looked after Hewitt in a protective sort of way, like a brotherly bond. He would even dial the phone for him when Hewitt had to make a call. Now that you have this little background info, let's dive a little deeper. February 28, 1978. A park ranger working in the Plumas National Forest reported an abandoned car that matched the description of Jack's. The car was on an unpaved road near Oroville, in the Rogers Cow camp area, past Elk Retreat, at an elevation of 4,500 feet. The turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego was located around a 2.5-hour drive from Chico, in the opposite direction from the route they would have been expected to drive home, and way up in the mountains in the Plumas National Forest. Police found no evidence of foul play at the site of the car, but the car wasn't locked. One window was down and the keys were nowhere to be seen. Candy wrappers, milk cartons, and basketball programs were in the car, but maps were left in the glove compartment neatly folded. There was no obvious damage to the car, despite the bumpy unmade road, it had around a quarter tank of gas and it was not stuck in the snow the driver had either used astonishing care and precision the investigators figured or else he knew the road well enough to anticipate every twist turn and rut so why did they leave a perfectly good working car there before you point out to the men's intellectual disabilities as the only reason for getting out of the car and not returning well they had often made trips like this and were well aware of travel procedures forest rangers searched the area for five days and found no trace of the men but soon after the search began a severe blizzard moved into the area covering any potential tracks around nine inches of snow dropped on the upper mountain the search teams nearly lost men themselves two days later as their casts struggled through the drifts march 13th 1978 The police would get their first break in the case when a witness came forward. A man called Joseph Scones contacted the police after he heard about the disappearance to say he had seen the man between 11 to 12 p.m. on the Friday that the group disappeared. He was driving up the gravel road to his cabin when his car became stuck in the snow and unfortunately, while trying to push his car out, he suffered a heart attack. Talk about bad luck. While laying on the ground beside his car, he heard something strange. He heard whistling. The whistling kept getting closer and closer. And then when he turned his head in the distance, he saw what he thought was a group of men and a woman with a baby walking in the light of another vehicle's headlights scones called out for help and the lights turned off and the whistling sound stopped a few hours later he saw a flashlight beams outside his car and he called out for help again but immediately the lights went out scones stayed in his car until it ran out of gas then walked eight miles down to get help passing Madruga's car on the way. He didn't think much about what he'd seen until he heard about the disappearances. Now, I don't know about you, but a man that just had a heart attack and walked eight miles, props to him. The day after that, a woman reported seeing the five men in a red pickup truck on Saturday and Sunday about an hour's drive from the site of their abandoned car. She owned a store there where two of the men came in to buy food. One of them made a phone call from a nearby phone, and the other stayed in the truck. June 4th, 1978 With most of the higher elevation snow melted, a group of motorcyclists went to a trailer maintained by the Forest Service at a campsite off the road about 19.4 miles, or 31.2 kilometers, from where the Mantigo had been found. A front window had been broken. When they opened the door, they were met with a sight that would stick with them forever. Wires decaying dead body. One man said that the smell of something That he will never forget. The day after Wire's body was discovered. Searchers found the remains of Madruga. And Sterling. They lay on opposite sides of the road to the trailer. 11.4 miles from the car. Madruga had been partially eaten by animals. And dragged about 10 feet to a stream. He lay face up. His right hand curled around his watch. Sterling was in a wooded area scattered over about 50 feet. There was nothing left of him but bones. Now, two days later, just off the same road, but much closer to the trailer, Jackie Hewitt's father found his son's backbone, along with a pair of Levi's and ripped sole get-there shoes. An assistant sheriff from Plumas County found a skull the next day about 100 yards downhill from the rest of the bones, which the family dentist used to identify the remains. Hewitt's remains were located northeast of the trailer. Like Sterling's and Madruga's, northwest of the trailer, about a quarter mile away, searchers found three wool forest service blankets and a two cell flashlight lying by the side of the road. The flashlight was slightly rusted and had been turned off. It was impossible to tell just how long it had been there. But things get even weirder. They found no signs of Gary Mathias. His tennis shoes were inside the Forest Service trailer, which suggested to investigators that he might have taken them off to put on Weir's leather shoes, particularly since Weir had bigger feet and Mathias' feet might have swollen with frostbite. Although the men's body were heavily decomposed, autopsy results determined that they had likely died from exposure. It appeared that Ted had lived 8 to 13 weeks after he disappeared based on the length of his beard and around 100 pound weight loss. He weighed just 120 pounds at the time of his death. Several bed sheets in a shroud were tightly tucked over his body, indicating that someone else had been with him in the trailer as he could not have bundled himself up in this manner. His leather shoes were often missing. A table by the bed held his nickel ring with Ted engraved on it, his gold necklace, his wallet with the cash still inside, and a gold Waltham watch, as crystal, missing, which the family said had not belonged to any of the five men. Ted's feet were also badly frostbitten. Now the story takes an even stranger turn. Inside the trailer, authorities found heavy clothing, matches, playing cards, books, wooden furniture, and other materials which could have easily been used to start a fire. Where there had been no apparent attempt to start a fire despite the freezing temperatures on the mountain. A propane tank connected to the trailer, which could have provided a ready source of heat and cooking fuel, was untouched. All they had to do was turn that gas on, says Yuba County Lieutenant Lance Ayers, and they would have had gas to the trailer and heat. In a storage shed outside, there was a year's supply of sea rations These were individual canned, pre-cooked, and prepared meals issued to the U.S. military. The men consumed 36 of the meals but left the majority of them untouched. In addition, there was a huge supply of freeze-dried meals. One of the C-ration cans had been opened with an Army P-38 can opener. Jack's mother said, There was some force that made them go up there. They wouldn't have fled off in the wood like a bunch of quail. We know good and well that somebody made them do it. We can't visualize someone getting the upper hand on those five men, but we know it must have been. They seen something at that game at the parking lot. They might've seen it and didn't even realize they seen it. There are so many questions circling this case. Like why did the Yuba City men get lost that night and end up on the mountain? Chico to Yuba City is a straight down Highway 70 through the Central Valley and low-lying land with no snow at this time of the year. A 46 mile drive around one hour, the car was found several thousand feet up in the area above the snow line in a completely different direction. Why did they abandon their trip to Yuba? Were they forced to go up the bucks lane on the way to palamento city did they decide themselves to take a detour or did they take a wrong turn what happened around the car i mean the group's car was left open with gas in the tank and in working order did they somehow leave the car and lose the keys i mean this could explain the strange story told by joseph scones where he said he saw flashlights around the car but fun fact to give you a little bit of context here joseph actually recanted that story and he came up with a different one the second time he was interviewed and then he said that he might have been hallucinating but he is still sure that he saw that car that night how did the group end up around a trailer 19 miles from the car Ted Weir was found in a trailer 19 miles from the car and Madruga, Sterling, and Hewitt were found in the locality but several miles away. How did they walk in normal shoes without outdoor clothing so far and snow several feet thick? Were the group together and then decided to separate after Ted's death to try and find help? It just does not make any sense. Also, why did Ted Weir apparently starve to death? Some of the rations in and around the trailer were eaten but much of it was untouched. Ted apparently had a slow and agonizing death from starvation having lost over half of his body weight. With so much food close by, why wasn't he eating? Had this group been abducted and the perpetrator was preventing access to food or was Ted suffering from gangrene caused by frostbite? There are so many theories surrounding this case. Uh, one. Notable one from their Wikipedia page reads Even knowing that four of the five men had died in the Sierra, investigators still could not completely explain what had led to those deaths. They still have found no explanation for why the men were there. Although they learned that Matthias had friends in the small town of Forbstown, and police believed it was possible, in an attempt to visit them on the way back home, The men may have taken a wrong turn near Oroville that put them on the mountain road. For whatever reason, the men had left the Montego. They had instead of going back down the road where they had passed the lodge that scones later returned to, continued along the road in the direction they were originally going. Intended motion like that is not consistent with a circular patterns traveled by those who genuinely believe themselves lost. guess that would make sense right but the day before the men went missing a forest service snowcat had gone along the road in that direction to clear snow off the trailer roof so it would not collapse it was possible police believed that the group had decided to follow the tracks and left through snowdrifts i mean four to six feet high to wherever they led in the belief that shelter was not too far away Madruga and Sterling probably succumbed to hypothermia midway along the long walk to the trailer. It is assumed that once they found the trailer, the other three broke the window to enter. Since it was locked, they may have believed it was private property and may have feared arrest for theft if they used anything else they found there. After Weird died or the others believed he had, they perhaps chose to attempt to return to civilization by different routes, overland and on foot. As for me, I mean, I have my own theories, cause this whole Gary Mathias, just, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Something does not add up here. I mean, while all four of the others were close friends for for multiple years, Mathias was new to the group. I mean, all five had met through the Gateway Projects, which was an organization for the intellectually disabled. Matthias had just joined it the year prior, while the other four had joined it years prior. The others had documented intellectual disabilities. For example, I mean, Ted, who was found in the cabin, was described by his brother as lacking common sense. The brother mentions a story where he had to carry his brother out of their burning house because his brother refused to get up because he had to rest before work the next day. Matthias, however, did not have any documented intellectual disabilities in the same way the other four did. He had been a football player in high school and served in the military following graduation. He did have a problem with drugs, but I mean, that doesn't make anyone a bad person. But he was first put into a psychiatric facility during his sophomore year of high school after a bad hallucination trip. He would later be medically discharged from the military for paranoid schizophrenia. After being discharged, he quickly went downhill. While being in jail, he called over a guard and punched him in the face. That same month, he was staying at his cousin's home and the cousin's wife was sleeping after taking medication for an illness. The cousin, after worrying why a bathroom break was taking so long, caught Matthias fondling his wife. After his cousin told him he was calling the police, he proceeded to tell his cousin that he wanted to return to jail. He was later arrested a few months later for threatening to stab a woman in the jaw and then telling the woman's three-year-old child that i thought i killed you once i guess i'll have to do it again matthias also had a history of breaking out of facilities and walking long distances after being arrested in stockton at one point he was sent to a psychiatric facility he spent two days there before breaking out through a drainage pipe and walking or hitchhike the 80 miles back home. At one point, he also left his home to go live with his grandmother in North Oregon. His mother begged him to return home, yet he hung up the phone. He showed back up a few weeks later, filthy, and claimed that he had walked from Portland, stealing milk off porches and eating dog food to stay alive on the 540 mile trip. The final violent incident occurred a few weeks later with his trip back home. He broke into the home of a local couple and the couple awoke to find Mathias standing in their bedroom. He told them that he was looking for a ring to return to Satan and that they also owed him rent money because the house was his. After that incident, he supposedly straightened out. He joined the Gateway Projects and became friends with the four other men. Despite his seemingly 180 change, some still were very wary of him. The Sacramento Bee stated the following. Following a 1978 interview with Matthias, longtime acquaintance Janet Enzerra, Yuba County sergeant James Black, wrote that Matthias had repeatedly told Enzerra of a dream where he and several other people would disappear. Enzerra called Matthias a very violent person hurting several men seriously and said that he also hates women, according to Black's interview notes. A brother of one of the victims also noted that the Mathias family was weird following the disappearance. The Sacramento Bee states, no one pulled the trigger on the boys, but something or someone killed them. Asked if he thought Mathias set up his brother and the others up to die, Dallas Weir replied, that's the only thing that makes sense in this scenario. Weir recalled that the hit 90s television series Unsolved Mysteries sought the involved family's permission to do an episode on the missing five sometime after their disappearance. Every family agreed except Matthias. Despite him still being missing, Weir said Matthias' surviving siblings declined to comment or could not be reached by the Sacraments of Bee. That's just suspicious. I'm not saying they knew, but, well, you can probably guess what I think where it said. What happened to these young men? I mean, I still stand by my theory that uh, Gary is the culprit. I think he might have purposely led them astray and given them false info to confuse them even more. But that's just where my brain points every time I hear this case. Hopefully. Your theory has a little more faith in humanity than mine if you want more info to do your own research the sources cited are in the show notes and that concludes our episode for this week as always stay safe stay sane and be careful how you go into the woods with